simple story for us this evening from the Old Testament um, regarding David's mighty men. Now, some of you will know this story. For others, it may be quite a new one. A um, little bit of background. I'm afraid I haven't got the, uh, the page in the Pew Bible, but sort of try and go right to the middle, then turn left and split it in half again. Oh, I missed. I came to Kings. But we'll go to 2 Samuel uh, in a minute, uh, chapter 23. But just a little bit of background. So if you're struggling, 2 Samuel is... I'll give you some help. It's just after 1 Samuel. So that should, uh, should help a lot. Bit of background, though, to this story. When David became king over Israel, the Philistines, judging that he would now become their uncompromising enemy, made a sudden attack upon Hebron, compelling David to retire from it. He sought refuge in what's sometimes called the hold or the cave of Adullam, and uh, an interesting place. And the Philistines took up their positions in the valley of Rephaim, which we'll read about in a minute, on the west and the southwest of Jerusalem, pretty close to Jerusalem. And uh, thus all communication between Bethlehem and Jerusalem was intercepted. So while David and his army were encamped here, there occurred this incident that we're just about to read in 2 Samuel 23. Um, But Adullam, as I mentioned, really interesting place as well. A little bit more history before we get into it. It was one of the royal cities of the Canaanites, uh, later named Aid el-Mar, apparently. It stood on the old Roman road in the valley of Elar, if you know that way. Um, which was the scene of David's uh, memorable victory over Goliath and not far from Gath. The cave of Adullam, apparently it's been discovered about two miles south of the scene of David's triumph and about 13 miles west from Bethlehem. And at this place there's a hill and I understand it's about 500 feet high and it's pierced with numerous caverns and caves Uh, in one or maybe more of which David gathered together what it says in 1 Samuel 22. Everyone that was in distress, everyone that was in debt, everyone who was discontent, the three Ds. And he sought them all over the place, brought them together. Some of these caverns are large enough to hold two or three hundred men. And it was here that David turned probably 400 or so of these distressed debtors and discontents into a crack army once more uh, to serve the living God. I love that whole thing about Adullam's cave, if you've come across it. Um, There's something inside me, you know, that, uh, you know, I pastored churches for, um, whatever, 20 years, and uh, I'm still a pastor wherever I go, but if, if it happened again, I would quite like, quite fancy um, a church called Adullam's Cave Christian Fellowship. Because it seems to me that even in the Christian community, before you even reach out to a broken world, reach out to a broken Christian community. You think of all the disgruntled, all the debtors, all the discontents, all the disappointed. So crucial we need, you know, to know what to do with our disappointments. It's often, you know, Jesus, I love you, I just don't get on with the church. I got bored with it, I got hurt by it. It just seems to me just a wonderful thing and something extraordinary of David's leadership that he could gather a bunch of 400 people who'd let their shoulders drop, who'd seen it all before, so there was no sparkle anymore, and yet 
was able to generate a new sparkle. Fantastic. So that's the setting of what we're doing by looking at 2 Samuel um, and 23. I'm going to read from verse 8 uh, to verse 12 with some interesting names here. These are the names of David's mighty warriors. Uh, Josh, let's call him. You settle for Josh, Josh this evening? Was the chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. I think we've got him here. Let's put him up on the screen. And next to him was Eliezer, son of Dodei, or sometimes Dodo, who sadly is not alive anymore. Um, as one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines um, that gathered for battle. Then the Israelites retreated, but Eliezer stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eliezer, but only to strip the dead. And then next to him was a guy called Shammah. And when the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils of all things, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field defended it and struck the Philistines down and the Lord brought about a great victory. Three mighty men. There are actually 30 of 30 chief men uh, that David had and only three of them, these three, were called the mighty men. Let's have a look at some of the others um, and we'll find them in verse 18. And uh, so here's an example of some of the remainder of the 30. Um, verse 18, Abishai, uh, let's call him Abi the sake of simplicity, um, was uh, he raised his spear, verse 18, against 300 men whom he killed so that he became as famous as the three. Was he not held in greater honour than the three? He became their commander, even though he was not included among them. And then there was someone called Ben, a valiant fighter, verse 20, uh, performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. <laughs> great the detail we get, isn't it? And he struck down a huge Egyptian. And although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Ben went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand, killed him with his own spear. And such were the exploits of Ben and he too was as famous as the three mighty warriors. He was held in great honour, um, greater honour than any of the 30, but he was not included among the three. And then eventually, for the rest of the chapter, you see um, a whole load more of them from verse 24 to 39. So really, a simple story, uh, extraordinary story, really. I tell you, I'm impressed. I mean, you know, I know many of us have killed lions in a pit, but how many have done it on a snowy day? <laughs> you know, this is impressive stuff that's going on here. So, but what was the difference then between the 30 chief men? You remember David brought 400 together, you know, 30 of them emerged into some significant position. Um, so there were 30 chiefs, chief men, but there were only just the three of the mighty men. We read that uh, the, the, these guys, Abby and Ben, as I've conveniently called them, were as famous as the three, held in greater honour than the three, and one of them became their commander. So, 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 so what was it? What was, what was the difference? From what we read, these were all just guys who had said, 
had come across extraordinary exploits um, uh, on, on battlefields. But maybe there's just a hint in the terms chief uh, and the terms and term mighty, because they, they seem at first glance fairly similar. But uh, chief, Hebrew, uh, rosh in the Old Testament, it's clear, it's about captain, it's about leader, it's about the head. And it speaks of role, of office, um, of title, of status, of function. Whereas uh, the mighty, uh, uh, the, the three who are mighty, um, well, really that's about being strong, about being champion, about being great, about being valiant. Um, it speaks of character. It speaks of values. It speaks of sacrifice. So not just leaders, but heroes. And so there's something about these three guys. What was it? What was it about? Well, we can read it and we can see it um, in the same chapter in verses 13 to 17. And uh, uh, let's, let's have a look at it now. So during the harvest time, these three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And at that time, David was in the stronghold. The Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. And David had a longing. He longed for water. He said, oh, that someone will get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty warriors only broke through the Philistine lines, (laughs) drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, must have had to break through the enemy lines again to get back again, carried it back to David, but he refused to drink it. And instead, he poured it out before the Lord. And he said, I can't do it. It's, it's, is this not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three Mighty men. Very extraordinary story. It's, you, you know, take these teams away and you're in, you know, hot and parched land and you're sitting around, you've done a good day's work in Liberia or whatever. You've got a bit of a team timer, enjoying the cool of the evening and guys just sitting around and, you know, someone sits back and says, oh, do you know what I miss? <laughs> we have a what I miss time. You know, it's usually Marmite or something ridiculous like that. But uh, this is what was happening here. These, these fighters, these guys wrapped up in a task but prevented from being in the very place they wanted to be. And the water of home obviously tastes a lot better than the water when you can't get, you know, wherever you are when you can't get home. So you can just imagine this scene, can't you? David just leaning back. Oh, do you know what I long for, guys? And he just expresses it, and 30 of them sat, sitting there, just three of them catch, catch one another's eye. Bit of a nudge, bit of a nod, they quietly slip out and do the most bizarre and crazy act of kindness um, that, uh, that could be imagined. So the difference between the chief and the mighty was one act of kindness, one expression of friendship, one investment into relationship, one symbol of the covenant that they shared, one unseen sacrifice, one simple glass of water. So, but 
what, what was it about these mighty men that made them act in such a crazy way? Well, I, I, I would guess something. I'm not going to read any more scripture out on this, but I would guess that on their way to leadership, in other words, becoming captains, becoming heads, becoming chief men, that they had really let God work, not just on their skills, but on their character. I've got this thing in my mind about skill and character. It's like we're very impressed with skills, aren't we? What people, you know, the external, the, the things that make them famous or whatever. But skill without character, if you, if you imagine one's one foot and one's the other, guys, if we're going to walk, we've got to grow up in both. <laughs> and if we just invest into skills and just invest into skills and just invest into skills, eventually we're going to do the splits. It's not really going to work very well. So there's something here that these guys realise. Look, it's not just about, you know, how to kill lions in pits on snowy days that I've got to learn. I've got to let God be at work on the inside of me in the subtle things. And I guess, I'm quite sure, actually, through pain, through crisis, maybe the distress, the debt, the discontent, that they had walked a walk that had said yes to dying to certain things and yes to raising up to live to certain new things. I think they'd let God press them and let him mould them. And they'd said yes to God where others would have just said, what he's asking is just not fair. So there's some sort of inner dealing that was going on. They'd wrestled with God on the dark night of the soul, just like Jacob had done. I love the expression, never trust a man without a limp. You know, we rather wrestle with God and have a few joints put out of... Joint? <laughs> Something went wrong there with my English, but you know what I mean. And, you know, and, and suffer in some way as we walk with God. You understand what I mean? Never trust a man without a limp. I love the expression. But I think these guys had wrestled with this sort of stuff. And maybe, just maybe... On their journey into fame and leadership, the other chief men, the other 27, just maybe hadn't let God work on them deep enough um, in these subtle things. I just want to suggest one or two of the subtle ways in which um, God's deal, God deals with our characters, and they're pretty obvious. These mighty men didn't think of themselves more highly than they ought to have thought. You know, they weren't, they weren't amongst those who were waiting to be served. They didn't just say to David, that would be great, wouldn't it, if one of the boys could go and get some water. You know, they took it on themselves in some way. Paul said it, don't, don't, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. How should we think? According to the measure of faith that is in us, that God has given you, actually. So when, you know, the mother of Zebedee's sons, as I think it says in in Matthew, came and said, look, can one of my boys go to your left and one to the right? Jesus said, I'm really sorry, you just don't know what you're asking for here. And then he said, can you, can you drink the cup? Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Um, and I think he said, didn't he, even if you can, um, it's not mine to give. The first must be the slave. The son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And this sort of we call it pride, you know, whatever we want to call it. Just, oh, please, God, just, just crush it to death. Not nearly to death, because it will rise up again. 
You know, you've got to make some choices here and say, I'm, I'm through with that, you know? And then um, another one here is just the, the fact that, uh, you know, if you weren't watching out for it, you'd have missed that moment. You'd have just said, yeah, David, that would be great, wouldn't it? But something deeper went on, you know, they, despite their tiredness, their discouragement, their hunger, they remained sensitive and in tune with the real needs of their friend. They thought, we can meet this need. We can, guys, we can do it. Wouldn't it be hilarious? Wouldn't it be such fun? They just, they just noticed it. Another thing that I think they'd let God uh, deal with them, and they didn't stop at the level of practical functionality. Think up a better word for it, maybe. But they didn't just stop at that, but they, they demonstrated by their actions that they really understood the extravagance of what we now know as the kingdom of God. I'm just, wherever you look in the scriptures, mathematically, it is bizarre. When Jesus told stories about forgiveness, you know, he didn't just talk about seven times, but 70 times seven. You know, as we all know, it doesn't mean 490. He was just, he was just pushing that thing out to somehow say, look, the mathematics of the kingdom are going to demonstrate this is absolutely everything, you know. It's, you know, that, that, so, so for this story, it's, it's perfectly in tune, um, not with time and motion studies that, you know, <laughs> David might have invested into, oh, this is, this is too dangerous, you know, I don't think it will survive a risk assessment. Hey, they sort of pushed through there somewhere. And it was this, you know, they, they, these guys realised that the kingdom of God was actually more about extravagance than about functionality. And I, oh God, you know, I want to know that one. I've married a very generous wife and I'm trying to catch up. <laughs> um, also, the, these guys, they, they weren't just driven by task, which I think is wonderful for, for, for people who were very, very task-oriented. They knew how to get a job done. They knew, knew how to kill, you know, several hundred Philistines in one go. Um, but they actually put weighty value on small acts of friendship, of kindness, of relationship. And I love the fact that when Jesus called his disciples, he didn't just call them that they might do something. He called them that they might be with him and that he might send them out. That they might be with him and that he might send them out. And these guys knew the value of relationship. They knew the kingdom of God was as much about being as it was about doing and these guys could do, seriously do. And yet they didn't wrap up all their identity in that. They understood there was a time and just to cut right back from that. Almost as it were to shock, not for the sake of shock, but for the sake of staying alive to these subtle things, to the things that don't happen until we really let God get hold of us um, on the inside. And then the last one here, that they were prepared to lay down their life for their friend. They weren't into self-preservation and protecting themselves. Jesus, knowing that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God, that he was going back to God, can you finish the sentence? He took up a towel and washed the disciples' feet. We could do a whole teaching series on that particular verse, but Jesus, knowing his identity, you know, having settled things between him and his Father, was no longer had to be consumed with himself, his own needs, his own reputation, uh, his own circumstances, but could give himself away. And if we know 
you know, who we are in Christ, if we've got hold of that, guys, we've settled something once and for all. Don't have to worry about serving myself anymore. Jesus looks after me, enables me to look after others. And these guys have got hold of that. Greater love is no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Many other scriptures we could say, but uh, I found it interesting that Jesus himself said, I tell you, whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one humble person even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. I wonder if I can just finish a story where I was um, uh, one who received such kindness uh, many, many years ago in Bluefields, Nicaragua. There's no roads in or out. Um, You fly in or you go on a panga speedboat through the jungle. Uh, There's not a lot of food there in the days when we first was was going there and uh, living and working alongside a pastor and his family, um, community household, whoever was around was invited, but it was precious little food. It was just a bit of rice and a bit of beans, if you know Central America, that's just about what you get. And uh, one day uh, came, it was actually in the back of their yard, because there were too many people around, you know, to feed them all in the house, and big table outside. And uh, they had three young children, and I, I just noticed uh, that as these, this table was set, and there was a bit of rice and beans, and far more flies, but a bit of rice and beans in the middle. And there was, there was an egg on one of the plates. I thought, that's so great. They found an egg for, for the children today. That's wonderful. So I sat down somewhere, and you can imagine, you know, they said, no, no, Alan, this is your place here. I've never wept over an egg before. Just to sit there with 20 or so people eating rice and beans. I had an egg. <laughs> so special. So special. Perhaps I should have poured it out before the Lord and said, I couldn't do this just like David did. I ate it. But I've wept over that egg many, many times since. And so it's not the heroic stuff. It's not the big stuff. And neither, ladies and gentlemen, is it saying, well, all I can do is make the tea. It's not actually out of faith, is it, that sort of statement. These were little things. They were water, they were eggs, they were tea. (laughs) They were tang and tea. But they were from deep, deep encounter with God. They were dripping with faith. And as David let the drips of that water pour out, something more than symbolism was going on. You know, something deep, deep was going on. So enjoy the little things. What do you aspire to? What impresses you most? Position, task, efficiency, achievement, reputation? Or could it be humility and sensitivity, extravagance, sacrifice and kindness?